Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to Cage Rage episode 57. It's the podcast in which we are on the journey to true Cage Nirvana by watching all of the films of the greatest actor of this, the former, the future of any generation, the goat, the golden hog of Hollywood himself, one Mr. Nicholas Cage, to get a little bit closer to greatness, to God, to that higher power, and understand the man a little bit better. How are you doing this week? Hope you've been well. Not too much to uh, to shout about this week myself. Um, be heading back to the cinema a little little bit. I'm going to see another round next week with Mad Mickelson. Looking forward to that. Uh, saw Monster Hunter, the adaptation of the video game with uh, Mila Jovovich in it. That was that was a film that I saw. Um, and there's what else have I seen? Um, uh, I watched Luca on Disney Plus. That was actually quite surprisingly good. Really enjoyed Luca. Uh, Loki series is out as well. Modoc on Disney Plus. Definitely recommend checking those two out. I've been watching a, an anime series called Way of the House Husband on Netflix. <laughs> That's quite good as well. It's about a former Yakuza mob boss who is now a house husband. Quite funny, I think. I've, I've really been enjoying it. Outside of that, in a real-life work-related things, I've come to the end of week one in a three-week stint of lates so word to the wise if anyone asks you for a favor um you say no and you punch them in the throat um so already excited for this to be over and done with um but something that is exciting and good to look forward to is this week's episode of cage rage because we're turning our attention to the sorcerer's apprentice Mm, yes also available on disney plus for streaming at the point of recording I was joined by Sean Coates, the host of Another Bloody Movie podcast. Uh, He joined me over the medium of Zoom to talk all about this film, and we had a nice, lovely, long chat about all things Sorcerer Cage. It's got a lovely episode coming up to enjoy. Let's get the admin out of the way as well. You can follow the show on Twitter, at Cage underscore podcast, wherever on Instagram at Cage Rage Podcast, and you can find us on all the usual streaming services as well. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, Stitcher, Deezer, TuneIn, and Acast as well, the host provider. Um, so if you're on one of those, you're in absolute luck. If you're not, why not? And how are you listening to this? Uh, there's also the coffee page as well, coffee.com, K-O-F-I, dot com forward slash Daryl Edge, D-A-R-R-Y-L-E-D-G-E. If you want to kick something back to the podcast, you don't have to, but if you could share it, give it a like, leave it a rating, especially on Apple and Podchaser, that'd be muchos appreciados. Um, with that all said and done, let's get into it. It's Daryl Edge, Sean Coates, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. ta It's time to round off 2010 with the fantasy action adventure, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. 
This week, Cage stars as Balthazar Blake, a modern-day sorcerer who takes on a reluctant protege to teach the art of science, magic, and sorcery. Now, joining me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week to see if this film should be taking on more students or just have its teaching privileges revoked is host of another Bloody Movie podcast, Sean Coates. Sean, how are you doing today? Uh, rather tired here in, uh, in Melbourne, Australia for lockdown, because we're currently in lockdown here, a snap seven day lockdown after a spike of some cases, but, um, day got somewhat better, I think, for rewatching this film for the first time in quite a while. <laughs> well, that's what, uh, that's what I say Cage is here to provide us some, uh, some levity, some entertainment, some escapism, um, but with Cage entering our lives at all, all all times like he's some kind of omnipotent presence some god um i always interested to know with guests for you um your thoughts on cage everyone's got an opinion on the man so for yourself is it rate him do you hate him do you just tolerate him uh where do you stand on nicholas cage i absolutely i rate him but i just think he's sort of unknowable like in terms of my sort of evolution of I guess how I've sort of perceived Cage is because my first sort of exposure to him. So I guess I should probably, I'm, I might be the youngest guest you've ever had on this show. So I was born in January of 1998. So all of like the, <laughs> uh, the mid early to mid two thousands, Disney movies, like your national treasures, like sort of cage at his like sort of most subdued is where I kind of knew him as like, so I had this idea, like as a young kid seeing him in movies is that he was this kind of serious actor. <laughs> but then obviously the more I saw the more that sort of evolved and changed yeah <laughs> that must be quite quite interesting then to have a sort of 2000s cage in a way because then I suppose um films like this this I guess family friendly period of cage is one that maybe you're more familiar with um I suppose it wouldn't be too far of a reach to say that uh you know would the national treasure films and stuff like that be on your radar as well around that time um, I don't actually think I've seen the first National Treasure. I've definitely seen National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets a bunch <laughs> of times. Because I, I, I specifically remember there's like a Mayan fortress under Mount Rushmore or something ridiculous like that. Yeah. <laughs> and Ed Harris gets stuck there, I think, after it starts flooding or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely one of those. Um, it's just set piece, set piece, set piece, set piece. And then the film ends. Um, mm. I think that film, sorry to cut you off there, but that no, no. film showed kind of showed glimpses of what I now know Cage to be. Like there's that part where he's, I believe he's in London and he's trying to distract the police, I think, so Diane Kruger can go steal something. And it's where he's pretending to act drunk and it's like, oh, okay. And then, so now that I've seen a lot of other Nicholas, like yeah, absolute batshit Nicholas Cage performances, I see moments like that and I'm like, Ah, that makes sense. <laughs> it wasn't just a weird one-off sort of thing. It's like, no, this guy might be actually crazy. <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> it's it's one of the great mysteries about Cage that I enjoy is that, um, that, that and I've brought it up before, you know, there is the perception of him that he is like the batshit, uh, insane, cheesy actor who will just take any role that you put in front of him. Um, and then there's obviously that video on YouTube, if you've seen it, called Nicolas Cage Losing His Shit, which is just sort of a compilation of all the times that he has screamed. 
like your national treasure to though it's him going like a uh, babble and squeak haggis and yeah. um <laughs> another such like classics um so i think it's easy to get that perception of him but when you sort of do this deep dive on his works like idiots like me do because they think nicholas cage podcasts are good ideas um and it's just it is to, <laughs> thank you um someone needs to do this like this could this could be someone's this will be someone's thesis one day or if it hasn't already <laughs> been done someone will write a thesis about the work of nicholas cage and get to the bottom and you know solve the his like enigmatic qualities <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of the whole point of this 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 journey to true cage nirvana just to try and understand him a little bit better but if by the end of this um because you know there will come a point where there are unfortunately no more Nicolas Cage films. That is life. Um, although I like to think that he is immortal and will outlive me, and that someone, my my child, my hypothetical child, will have to inherit this podcast from me. Um, if the ultimate goal is not that I am one day referenced in some student's thesis, some film student's thesis, what a, what a legacy <laughs> for me to leave if nothing else um, absolutely comes from this. Um, but sort of outside some like the batshit stuff, um, or maybe even still within it. Um, uh, how many of these other films are you sort of familiar with, or was it still more of this sort of two thousands post period that was your prime cage? Um, it's still probably my prime cage in terms of probably the most that I've seen. Like a, for for some other reason, like Sorcerer's Apprentice is like one of these Nicolas Cage movies that I've just strangely seen like seven hundred times. But also another one, which I think you've already covered on your podcast, if you're going chronologically, but next, where he's like some sort of Vegas, like magician, also psychic, weird. It's a movie that my dad bought on like DVD and like when it, because I don't think it got a cinematic release in Australia and it just went straight to DVD. And my dad, like that, that is almost probably scratched from overuse, like the amount of times (laughs) that I have, I don't think I've actually seen the whole film of next, but I think I've seen the whole film in like sort of 15 minute chunks over the span of like 10 years. So I think I know everything that happens. I've just never seen it in the right order. Uh, next is an interesting one because it's, I think on, on, on one side of the equation, you've got uh, Nicolas Cage, uh, perhaps his worst Cage hair in, in cinema. It's up there with Bangkok Dangerous as some of his worst hair mm. committed to screen. But at the other side, Next is one of those films where I think it could have gone completely off the rails, but there is a good film in Next, um, which I, I don't think they got completely right. Um, and to this day, I still think would actually work better if they made it into like a TV series or something, because, yeah. you know, these like detective TV drama cop shows, whatever you want to call them, um, you have to have an angle. You've got to have someone, you know, the straight cop and then this the other person, other cop or the person they take on. And I think, you know, uh, the person they bring on, I could see two minutes into the future. I think there's a hook. I think that's an angle um, that is just been waiting to be explored for about fifteen years, and no one's doing it because they're all cowards to take on Cage's legacy. Mm. But, but like a lot of like the the, but from what I think, what most people would think of Prime Cage, I've only actually seen recently, like and recently being like within the last sort of five ish years, like since I kind of started getting more into film and going to university to study film. Like, um, I think Face Off is probably one of the greatest action movies ever made. And, like, Nicolas Cage is just 
amazing, like genuinely amazing in that, but as both roles, really, like even, even though like I've seen a lot of people talk about like how he's only really fun as Caster Troy, but he has some really great moments as Sean Archer in that film as well, specifically where I believe it's, is it him and Nick Cassavetes and they're both like high and then that's the, the great moment where he's like, I want to take his face off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, absolutely. I mean, th this is something I've said before. I mean, that sort of mid to late 90s period when you've got The Rock, Conair and Face Off. Right? I mean, what an amazing run of like three films, mm. four films if you want to bring like Leaving Las Vegas into it. Yeah, so he somehow won. I've, I haven't seen Leaving Las Vegas, but like I really want to now because, you know, he, he won an Oscar for it. And I don't know <laughs> who he was up against in that, but like, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 95. Just... Mel Gibson in Braveheart, he must have beat then. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I'd have to sort of look into it and see who he actually beat out that year. Um, but it, it's interesting because I think I think Leaving Las Vegas is a great film, but I don't, for me personally, I don't even think it's his best work um, and not even his most sort of cagiest work either. Um, just looking here, he was against... Uh, Richard Dreyfus uh, for Mr. Holland's Opus, Anthony Hopkins for Nixon, Sean Penn in Dead Man Walking, and uh, Massimo Troisi uh, for Il Pastino, The Postman. Um, oh, I thought that was the um, Kevin Costner's The Postman for a second. I've got it up <laughs> as well. <laughs> Look at that. Oh, I suppose the year before, though. Um, the Tom Hanks one for Forrest Gump and the year after Jeffrey Rush. Um... But I, I still, this is something I've brought up before. I still think that he was robbed for adaptation in two thousand and two, and I'll, I'll, mm, I'll yeah, die on that hill. That. I will die on that hill. Um, did he get nominated? Because that, that year was Adrian Brody was that year. But did he get nominated? Uh, yeah, he was in the running for all the uh, well, the big three. Um, I think Adrian Brody won one. Uh, Jack Nicholson won another award, and I think it was the. BAFTAs that Daniel Day-Lewis won for Gangs of New York. Yeah. But, but as I always say, Daniel Day-Lewis, how dare you take that British award meant for Nicolas Cage? <laughs> You're banned from the podcast. <laughs> Fuck you, Daniel Day-Lewis. I won't stand for your bullshit anymore. They um, haven't been in a film together, have they? So <laughs> I was going to say, like, are you protesting if, if Nicolas Cage and Daniel Day-Lewis have been in a film together out of protest? You're like, no, not covering on the show. <laughs> cage rage is in full effect it's cage rage against daniel day lewis yeah i think i'll have to invent um a one film veto for anything that daniel day lewis gets his grubby fucking paws into um <laughs> <laughs> absolutely won't stand for it i have to take a professional uh a professional buy on that one um but i suppose to, to the point mm. as well it was one of these things that i also bring up as well in the fact that when you get that run from the rock onwards, you know, Nick Cage could well have been a, a great action star. Um, but I think the joy is that you never know what his next film is going to bring. He doesn't pigeonhole himself. I think but just because mm. he enjoys acting, he doesn't see himself as above the craft, which I think is um, really admirable. He's not in it for, well, okay, you can argue from the 2010s in his hot DVD <laughs> period, part of it was necessitated by finance. But I think a lot of it, isn't necessarily driven by money and i think he just he just does enjoy acting which i always find very um like i said respectable and admirable about him um and and his and his craft as well even though like i say some of his 
later works in the last decade maybe don't quite um, <laughs> reflect that so much as well. Um, I do think the highlight in terms of like the last decade, I think the highlight is probably Mandy because that Mandy, I don't know if you've seen Mandy yet, but Mandy kind of has a good mix of like a genuinely, genuinely good performance from Nick Cage where he shows like a lot of, a lot of range really like there's some good emotional realism in that film that and you know like <laughs> he really sells it when some pretty horrific stuff happens to him you really sell it but then there's also you know that moment where like he's wielding a chainsaws and axes and snorts <laughs> like an ant hills of an ant hill of cocaine at one point in that film and Absolutely. like yeah so it's the like i think mandy is like the is that the nick cage performance is like the perfect blend between absolute batshit insanity and just you know you know, an actual good performance. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was um, definitely a film that was sort of kickstarted, almost a reboot for Cage as well, because he was still surrounded by a lot of guff before and after the release of Mandy as well. But um, I think, like, I loved Mandy. I think it definitely put him back on the map for, like, people wanting to get him in movies. Uh, I think one of my favourite parts about Mandy, though, I'm talking about in, in very, very recent um I guess film cage memorabilia history is that um, for years I'd been calling and just begging for a Nick Cage Funko Pop because I I just love those little collectible figures and finally we're getting them for Mandy for um uh, for his oh, character really? Red I think they've I know they've announced them for America I think for people like us who are completely away <laughs> from uh, that area that continent that country. Um, I don't really fancy paying the shipping prices because I'm not made of money. You think I make money on a podcast yeah. like this? Absolutely not happening. <laughs> um, but to know it's there, it's out there. Uh, those the Nick Cage pop vinyl is coming. Um, yeah, it, I used to be a used to be a big pop vinyl guy. Not so much anymore. As soon as the um, and I'm, for the listeners, I'm bringing up here. As soon as the Fury Road uh, vinyls finally came out, that was when I'm like, yep, I'm getting these and I'm done. <laughs> so, listeners at home, I'm showing Daryl my uh, Furiosa pop vinyl figure. And I've got the Doof Warrior somewhere here, but I cannot see him. So, uh, sorry, you miss out on that. <laughs> All mine are downstairs. I've got uh, three Bob Ross pop vinyls and a Deadpool pop, <laughs> Bob Ross pop vinyl. So I just want that to be a measuring stick of the kind of pop vinyls that I'm looking for personally. But I think with with the 2010s as well, you know, I, I think it's easy to say there's a lot of guff in there, but you do do get some... Um, some shining lights. Like I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'll say it after this podcast. You've got Joe in 2013, uh, which is perhaps the most underrated Nicolas Cage performance, someone that was just absolutely still slept upon. Um, still haven't seen it. Oh, you were you were missing out, sir. Missing out. It's um, so it's just like a, like a quiet Cage performance, but it was one of those that's. Um, and again, this is one that I've said before, and I kind of hate having to use this kind of description, but one that reminds you that Nicolas Cage can act, um, <laughs> which I always feel is like such a weird thing to say about an actor. Um, because like what we were saying before, I think by this point, a lot of people had written Cage off. He still had some you know, not great films before, not great films after this, but it was one that reminds you, like, yeah, he's still here, he can still bring it. Um but you know, this is at a point, and with with the Sorcerer's Apprentice as well, sort of closing out twenty ten for him. Um, I think you know this is his last sort of big cinematic releases um, before we get into the likes of Trespass and Seeking Justice before the video on demand 
era mm. begins. So in some ways, the last hurrah for Cage before um, a lot of uh, a shit tidal wave will come and start defining the 2010s for him. Um, but looking at the Sorcerer's Apprentice, though, you know, this is one that you did say that you've... Um, you seem to have seen a lot. We were talking in sort of the Twitter DMs before recording, and you said you'd seen this a lot of times. Um, so, you know, as, as, as a brief overview, I suppose, before we get into uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice a bit more, um, what your sort of, like, overview of this film and sort of how you sort of um, still react to it now, having seen this about once a year for the past 10 years? Uh, um, so yeah, so this came out, uh, well, funnily enough in the U S this opened the same weekend as inception, which is a bold move from, uh, Disney on that, <laughs> but that is, you know, big balls of Disney to do that, to go up against Christopher Nolan with the sorcerer's apprentice, a, a property that, you know, it, I, I, I saw in the credits, it even just said suggested by the sorcerer's apprentice short from Fantasia, not based by, not inspired by, but suggested <laughs> by, yeah, bold. <laughs> bold, if nothing but, else. But I remember, I didn't actually see this in cinemas, so I, the first time I would have seen this would have been, like, when it came out in DVD in, like, Jan, in Australia anyway, in, like, January of 2011, and I think it was, like, a, a DVD rental or a Blu-ray rental, I believe, I had a Blu-ray player in 2011, I think. I can't remember. But, yeah, I just remember seeing it, uh, seeing it when as a 12-, 13-year-old and enjoying it thoroughly. You know, because that's the kind of perfect age for that film. If you're like any older, any younger, you're probably going to think it's too weird or too dull or too just kind of stupid. But yeah, but then so I saw it on DVD the once and enjoyed it. But then when my when my family got like cable television around like around 2012, there was like a family movie channel and it was just on constant constant rotation on like the family movie channel and it's just like anytime i turn the tv it was on so i was like oh gotta watch it <laughs> i got i got I just gotta watch it it's just one of yeah. those like I had another there was another one of those films around that time where it's just like it was on tv like that green green lantern as well was another one of those movies like sure. that movie bloody sucks but i've seen that film about five different times <laughs> it was just always on cable sure i think it's like here i think to bring up a film from earlier um National Treasure, I think, is one over here that gets um, a fair bit of airtime. Like every few months, it's on like mm. one of the uh, secondary channels over here, like an ITV two or ITV three. But it's, I think, it's one of those. Um, maybe it's a similar thing for you, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, like National Treasure was here. It's one of those that it's such like an inoffensive and just uh, easy film to watch. National Treasure, I think, it's one that um, you'd be hard pressed to have a bad time with it um but you know like you said the, the audacity of this to sort of go up against to try and go up against inception because i was i saw it was released um just like on a wednesday which i think was such uh such an intentional move because you get most films i guess that come out on you know the friday to take the weekend box office or to try and make some impact there but just a midweek release um just to quietly slot in try and make some some dollar dollar bills before uh, inception just comes in and um just uh, dominates <laughs> everything for a while um right i did see i think in the u.s box office at least it did knock twilight eclipse from number two but despicable me was still sort of raining yeah i think it opened in third behind despicable me 
I think yeah. I think Despicable Me, which was number one, I believe, for the Fourth of July weekend, and then Inception came afterwards, not knocked it off top spot, and then Sorcerer's Apprentice was three, still behind it. Yeah, I mean, I think you're looking at what we would be, you know, the the summer box office release schedule when you're looking at sort of um, that point in July when the big movies are coming out. So exactly like you said, though, I think. Disney potentially had um, much higher aspirations for this film than I think were received by the audience. Um, I mean, it, it made it made a small take at box office. Had a budget of one hundred and fifty hmm. million. Box office was just over two hundred and fifteen million. Where did it go though? That's what I want to know. One hundred and fifty million. Like, yeah, put money into Cage, I guess, and like who else? <laughs> like, you know, uh, you know, Monica Bellucci got probably got a million for the you know the five minutes she's in this film. Jay Baruchel might have got a fair bit too, I don't know. And the, the visual effects, they're okay. Some of them look good, some of them don't. That dragon is kind of terrible. <laughs> but there's a lot of practical stuff. I read on the IMDb trivia, so take this with as many grains of salt as possible, but they supposedly used half a ton of confetti in that sequence, the Chinatown dragon fight sequence. I mean, you can, and it definitely shows when you look at a budget like $150 million. Yeah. I did read something in passing that it took a number of months to plan that sequence. Um, but, I mean, I guess a lot of that, I know, well, obviously we'll get into this a bit more, but, yeah, there's a lot of confetti and a lot of that scene as well is Nicholas Cage surrounded by confetti looking up. Mm. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm not in the financial financial realm of film. I don't know how much money scenes take, but, yeah. you know, if, we, if we're talking Cage looking great, looking pink, looking like a... A fine, like Chad Kroger esque, uh, almost Van Helsing type um, sex symbol. Then absolutely, you're pumping millions into that scene. Um, like I said, it's, it's a big CGI film, and I think they were probably hoping on a lot of the spectacle selling this film. Mm. It, it, you know, for, for a 2010 film, um, some of the CGI was fine. Um, maybe they're like, "Oh, I hope people are as enamored by Tesla coils as we are." Um, <laughs> in, in this one um, but I think when they was and I suppose I'm going to say this with you know, air quotes where they're lightly inspired by Fantasia and the Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence in there as you say suggested by okay Disney I see you um, you would you would think I suppose that they would do a lot more with a lot of the, the spectacle of it in the CGI mm. and Really, it's just kind of um, the, 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 the almost like force push and wind and just hadoukening and plasma blasting. Um, so many hadoukens. <laughs> a lot, a lot of hadoukens. I mean, you'd, in the credits, they should have just said suggested by you know Street Fighter. Um, <laughs> you know who 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 are we kidding? You know, let's be honest with ourselves. Um, but like I said, this this was this was the first time for me, um, and I thought you know a brief overview for myself. I thought it was, you know, the film was fine. Again, like we're touching on here, you you can tell that Disney had higher aspirations for it. I think they leave it, they left it open in the post credit scene to a sequel. Um, but mm. this is something else we were talking about, perhaps endemic of um, live action Disney films at the time. I think something you brought up as well. Um, I think they were just really looking for um, that next Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, which had, um, they just seemed to not not find for a while with a lot of the out- could, output here. Well, I think what happened is that 
the Avengers was huge and they just kind of gave up uh, <laughs> on trying to do that. So they're like, oh, we've got this other thing that makes millions of dollars and we don't have to invest hundreds of millions into these, you know, uh, projects that we don't even know we're going to do well and i say that as probably the biggest fan of john carter that exists on this earth like i'll defend that <laughs> film I'll, I'll defend that film all the way to my death that movie rules and anyone that hates it is wrong and shame on you for all letting it flop i say this as someone who did not see this in cinemas either was literally about to get in the car with my dad and go see it and then we're like ah, let's not <laughs> <laughs> and I feel so bad about that. But no, this, I am endless. Maybe it's just because like, you know, I was like, it was a very formative, you know, a very malleable age. Like my, my, I was at a very sort of impressionable age around like of that sort of period of Disney. So like, you know, 11 to 14. So like this period of Disney is so endlessly fascinating to me because it's, as you said, it's just them trying to make both not only another another parts of the caribbean but also another national treasure like same director even john turtletaub who did both the national treasure movies and then also with nicholas cage and then also produced by jerry bruckheimer this one as well and almost all of these like the live action disney period all of these films from this period of disney live action they're all trying to recapture that by you know films that you don't know if they're going to have any sort of success that's why you get films like you know like and they start bringing back you know so they do sorcerer's apprentice which is loosely based on a property like another one that i really love though but tron legacy like you know based on a <laughs> yeah. very long dormant disney property to see if that does anything then you get the pirate sequel which is the most but the, so pirates of the caribbean 4 on stranger tides is the most expensive film ever made you wouldn't know it from watching it, but it's literally the most expensive film ever made. I think the the net budget, I think, was almost $400 million. So huge, huge movie. So you know this is the kind of direction that they wanted to go in. So and then they make these sort of films that are like flop after flop. You get like, they start in, you know, they do like, you know, John Carter. The real nail in the coffin is The Lone Ranger. Just before this, Prince of Persia came out, which also starred Alfred Molina and Toby Kebbell, both in this film and in Prince of Persia, The Sands of Times. Another Jerry Bruckheimer production too. And they just just never failed to, you know, fire and really... Like, they all kind of made money, except for John Carter and Lone Ranger, which were huge, huge flops. But, like, it's just... it's Looking back on it now, it's so transparent what they were trying to do. And it's a kind of... In a way, like, it's good that we don't get more of these. And, like, I'm kind of glad that we didn't get a, a Fantasia cinematic universe out of this. Although... <laughs> Although they have been talking about a Night on Bald Mountain movie for like almost a decade now, and I really would like to see that because it would basically be like, you know, a film version of the Disney show Gargoyles, which that would be really cool. But, sure. Yeah, but the, 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 the Sorcerer's Apprentice to me is just such the, it's probably the oddest out of all of their, like all of their attempts to try to recapture that Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, the formula of that in like this time period. Yeah, definitely. It's it's such a great overview because, like I said, there's so many properties there, like John Carter, Prince of Persia, which was like a really big video game series at the time as well, which sort of nothing more really happened with that. Um, and it, it, it almost seemed like Disney were just saying, you know, sort of in a time where I think the Avengers movies were sort of gaining so much traction as well, like they were just trying to throw so many other properties at the wall and see what stuck. And then they're like, oh, yeah, let's just stick with Marvel. Um, well, thinking about it now, I think the Marvel stuff was already in their sights. But I think the thing that replaced these is the Disney live action remakes. 
that is what replaced all of these. And I, I, yeah. I can't even remember what the first one was. I think it was Cinderella was like the first major one. And that's um, actually genuinely good. Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella movie is genuinely good. Like, but that one and like about half of the Jungle Book movie, I think are like the only good live action Disney remakes. Yeah, I think you know that's sort of the period where we are at as well. We've got a bunch of the uh, the live action remakes. I know we've got the Little Mermaid coming up um, at the time of recording. Not so much a remake, but you know an expansion. The Cruella movie is just dropping as well. Um, but even with the Sorcerer's Apprentice, like you say, I th- perhaps it was a good thing that at the time they uh, held some restraint. They pulled the reins back on Mickey Mouse and said, yeah, get back here, Rodan. And then they didn't go full on into the uh, the Fantasia universe. But it still feels to me like it's definitely something that's um, maybe not, not a case of, you know, not never, but when that we will get that because I, th- I feel like it's it's still too there's too much potential there almost like they didn't quite get it right in this one but i definitely feel like the sorcerer's apprentice especially is something that maybe in just that way that a lot of filmmakers and the you know quote unquote the hollywood machine can't help itself that it's something that they might go back into whether that's a new film whether it's a disney plus thing or a tv series um because there's definitely i think there was definitely potential here as well but you know and the thing I came out of the film when I finished it, and like again, first time viewing for me, um, and I don't know how continued viewing for yourself has changed the film over the years, but um, I didn't hate it. You know, I thought it was fine. You know, I didn't love it. Um, I kind of forgot a lot about it afterwards. But um, even with all the films that you mentioned, there was like six different writers working on this film between story and screenplay. And those other writers touched on Prince of Persia, Sands of Time, which we said, Race to Witch Mountain, Planet of the Apes as well. I forgot about Race to Witch Mountain. Yeah, that's another, I believe that's another Bruckheimer, like another Disney property that they tried to revive through the Bruckheimer sort of, uh, you know, house of Disney. Yeah, um, I think it's important to sort of, you know, note as well for those who don't know Jerry Bruckheimer, an incredibly powerful producer in Hollywood, I think especially this time frame as well, sort of the, the 2010s. Um, if you could name a big franchise, there's a good chance that he was involved in it mm. as um, as a producer. And not the first yeah. time he's produced on a Cage film as well. You'll find his it, name linked to a bunch of stuff in his uh, Even back past. in the 90s, like, you know, Bruck, you know Bruckheim, Bruckheimer and Disney, like, you know, back when Disney had touched, like, I miss Touchstone Pictures. I wish they'd come. I wish Disney would bring them back, but that's never going to happen now. <laughs> but, like, you know, all of these movies, like, Jerry Bruckheimer, like, there's this sort of house style that, like, uh, to Bruckheimer film that I don't think to, I, I, I don't I've seen a couple of John Turtletold movies, but he seems much more like a workman sort of director. Although the the beginning of this film with like that's set in like the dark like the dark ages when it's like the eighth century, like it's going on. It's a lot of really weird stuff going on there. It kind of felt like um Guy Ritchie's King Arthur movie for a lot of that stretch. But like you know the Bruckheimer movies, they they have a very specific style. Like you know they'd often get like you know frequent Lord of Directors that would work with them. Like you know a lot of Michael Bay and Tony Scott's movies were all Bruckheimer productions because they worked so well within that sort of style and you know that sort of type of film that Bruckheimer Bruckheimer Studios produced. Yeah, definitely, and I think touching on what you said there about the start of the film as well being sort of the eighth century um, Dark Ages kind of thing. Um, I think that was also um, uh, sort of a wide reflection on the kind of films that 
Cage wanted to make at the time because even though his movies from movie to movie can vary quite a lot in what they actually are, there are often times when there's a batch of films in a certain period that he wants to make. I think around this time was definitely a, uh, shall we say, a mystic period for Cage because I think you had this um, season of The Witch after this. This yeah. was sort of bookended by Ghost Rider films as well. Funny how he went from, you know, being a, you know, a magic, <laughs> you know, a sorcerer to killing witches. <laughs> in like in the span of just a couple of films it's called range man it's called range yeah, um exactly that's, also... that's how talented he is <laughs> well it's um i think drive angry sort of not too long after this which sorcerer's apprentice season of the witch then drive angry um obviously you know he's as you said sorcerer in this one he's killing witches in the next one and then what I enjoy about Drive Angry is there's a scene where he gets his eye shot out, which he wanted to have in Season of the Witch, but they wouldn't let him do it. Um, so there was a period of time here when Nick Cage, not just wanting to be, not just content with wanting to be in a like a mystic, sort of mysterious film, yeah. he really he wanted his face. actively seeking out these sorts of roles, probably. <laughs> he was actively seeking out these roles and something where he could have his face disfigured um, because that's the yeah. kind of... You know, those are the kind of roles that he absolutely looks for as well. Um, and even, like I say, bookending it with like Ghost Rider 2, you know, that's a film I'll defend because I saw that in the cinema and I, I thought that was great. I'll make I'll make no secret of that. I really enjoyed Ghost Rider 2. So but... that's a film I haven't seen since, like, well, not that I saw it in cinemas, but, like, when it first came out to, like, home video and sort of stuff like that. I remember seeing it and absolutely hating it. But then I've become, since then, I've become much more aware of the work of Neville Dean Taylor and just how manic and crazy their filmography is. Like, I, and then I look back at that movie, I'm like, maybe I might actually enjoy Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance because I have since seen Crank and the, the Crank films, and those are just absolutely insane. <laughs> so I'm like, wait, was this what the Ghost Rider movie was like? I need to go back and rewatch that. And especially, like, those sort, those are the sorts of filmmakers, if anyone knows how to unleash Nick Cage into, like, a full-on, full-on Cage, go full Cage performance, it'd be those guys. <laughs> Yeah, I think Ghost Rider 2 is one that it's, um, it, when we're talking about Cage performances, like a Nicolas Cage film and not just a film Nicolas Cage is in, I think Ghost Rider 2 is, is one that, you know, I think it's left out of the conversation because there's a, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to recall from, it's been about nine, ten years since I saw it in the cinema, but there was a, a lot of bad shit where they took Ghost Rider 1, they're like, we need to dial this up, like, you know, excuse the pun, crank this up to 11. Um, <laughs> and they, they really unleash him, which I think I think was for the better. I think audiences didn't necessarily agree, but you're all wrong, and I'll die on that hill. Um, but, you know, um, <laughs> going off on a tangent there. Um, but obviously going back to the opening of this film, sort of the 8th century, you know, this is only about sort of, you know, three, five minutes of screen time, but you get a lot of exposition. Um, yeah. I forgot the, the narration in this film. I forgot that there was narration. Yeah. You <laughs> They're trying bit... to move through it very quickly. But then like, as soon as they like establish everything that's happened and like, you know, like uh, Cage, um, Alfred Molina and Monica Bellucci were all the apprentices of Merlin and like uh, Alfred Molina, because he's Alfred Molina, is evil. So like he turns against them, starts working with Morgana. They trap them in some bizarre babushka doll, and then Balthazar has been sent on a mission. Basically, Kurt, like it, it was put a spell on him to stop them from aging, so he could look for the get ready for it, guys, the prime millennium. 
Got how many times yeah. you have to hear the words Grimhold and Prime Millennium in this movie. <laughs> it's, uh, look, it, it, there isn't a whole lot of, like, fantasy, like, jar- uh, they don't create their own fantasy jargon in this movie that much. So it's a bit odd. Like, I'd kind of, it's weird. I'd accept it more if there was more of it. But the fact that they're just saying, like, all these made-up words, like, Prime Millennium, they say it so much through the movie, it just feels strange. <sighs> yeah, yeah. I, I, even now, I'm not I'm not sure if it's for, for better or for worse that they don't go even more in. I'm making just more, just wizard words, um, really. Let's say this, the start of the film, they obviously, you know, a, a lot of um, exposition and backstory that they're sort of squeezing into all of this just to get you up to speed with where we are in the present. Um, and then, like you said, you forget that there's a narrator, Ian McShane, you forget is the narrator. Is that Ian McShane? Ian McShane is the narrator. Um, what? He's, he gets about... I don't even know if the, <laughs> if the narrator comes into it later on. You know, you get him it's, there. I don't think he does. That's yeah. That's... Because I was like, this sounds familiar, and I didn't. I forgot to check who it was in the credits. And my god, that was Ian Mc. Is yeah. that just because was that in his contract for the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie? Did he sign like a contract with um with Bruckheimer Films, just saying like, oh, you'll also do this narration. You'll come into a recording studio for an hour and record this narration for this other movie we're doing. It wouldn't surprise me because you know, if, hey, if you can pick up a paycheck for like five minutes of work, more mm. power to you. As far as I'm concerned. It- it also kind of feels like that opening tested poorly and they didn't know what was going on, so the narration was probably added at the last second. Like, there was probably yeah. an extended sequence in the 8th century because a lot of this film feels like it's probably cut down a bit. Like, I I think I, I might even own the Blu-ray back at home, so I don't know if there are many deleted scenes of this film, but it would be interesting to see because it does feel like it has been uh, cut up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's nearly two hours, this film, because even in some parts when it feels like there are some cuts, it still feels a little long to me, at least. Um, but even with this, you get the 740 AD, you get a lot of exposition. And then even when it flashes to, I say flash, moves to yeah, 2000s New York, it's yeah. still exposition-y in that we're getting the character of Dave just to set up his backstory and where he is in the future, which is 2010's New York, um, which I didn't realise as well. You know, you've got um, the young Dave there and who they will, you know, we will figure out his, his, his um, long-term love interest, um, Becky, the young Becky, played by Peyton List, who now plays Tori Nichols in the Netflix series Cobra Kai, who I didn't realise um, that was her. Okay. Um, well, I, I know I know her from the Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies, so <laughs> they're just different generations, I guess. <laughs> I know um, that was one that oh, missed, oh, missed me. By also, D- Dave's friend as well, uh, Robert Capron, that actor, he plays Rowley as well in those Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies. So you know they're getting they were getting work before those movies. I like to see it. All come all comes back to Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I think um, the <laughs> the guy who played the the Wimpy Kid uh, was in. Um, the second National Treasure film, as well. Um, yeah, that's right. He is. He's he's that kid who it's like Lincoln's son or whatever, or whoever gets shot. Because that's that's right. Because National Treasure two opens in the the theater with John Wilkes Booth shooting Lincoln, doesn't it? Yeah, and and the, <laughs> and the kid who the the wimpy kid. Um, there's a scene when they're outside the White House and Nicholas Cage is arguing with this boy about the conspiracy theory. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I. 
I actually like um I was sort of you know I touch upon this in the episode with uh, National Treasure too, but there's a, a scene where he does this really weird hand gesture. It's like a sort of weird pointed finger gesture, but the fingers kind of like curled in. And I messaged the guy on Instagram. And I was like, "This is a super weird question, but do you remember this scene? Do you remember what that hand gesture was all about? Because there's all these different theories on the internet." And he was kind of like, um, to my surprise, he got back to me and answered the question. But he was like, oh, I just remember that the director very specifically told me to make that hand gesture. Um, so some people are saying it's the same hand gesture that Danny Torrance does in A Shining, uh, in The oh, Shining, I should yeah. say. Uh, but there's another film uh, oh, with Bruce Willis, and the name of it escapes me, when he oh, he turns into like a young kid. And the kid does the hand gesture in that one as well, and it might have been a callback right. to that. Yeah, um, to t- Tony from the shining that's right uh very but supposedly tangent, danny but... from the future i believe from, i think dr sleep the book the novel explains that that's danny from the future right and that's so sort of him communicating to his past self i think i'm not exactly sure oh right so you know maybe he's maybe he's past nick of the cage for all we know who knows a lot of elements in national treasure that will never get because they refuse to do national treasure three mm. yeah um, well it would have been, I reckon National Treasure 3 would have been, um, you know, Nicolas Cage getting the dinosaur bones, I believe. And like, him trying to, <laughs> you know, trying to, it, that whole ordeal with the dinosaur bones. And actually, this is kind of where we are at the film now. When they, when he's sort of only, when he owns that like occult store with like all those potions and books, there's cobwebs everywhere and like antiques. I think it's called like the Arcana, the Arcana, like it won't work. The rhyme won't work because of her accents, but like the Arcana Cabana or whatever it's called. And yeah. um, I was honestly expecting like there should be dinosaur bones hanging in this shop. Like Chris, <laughs> he needs to be selling dinosaur bones in yeah. the store. Yeah, definitely a missed opportunity. Um, I gave him accent like um, Arcana Cabana, Arcana Cabana. Yeah. So like Arcana Cabana, I think it's, you know, the best way. To pronounce it, um, but I think you know that's that's where um, the New York two thousand thing kind of gets its its crescendo, if you will. Young Dave is chasing a post it note from young Becky because she's put on a post it note whether they're just friends or in a relationship. So he just goes completely out of his way to chase a post it note yeah. through New York. It ends up yeah. um, because film in uh, Nicholas Cage's uh, Mystic Store because he's now set up shop in New York. I think yep. he said he's for centuries um he's been looking for as you said the prime Merlinian. this is the um the relative of Merlin who'll be the one to truly stop Morgana Le Fay he's the is... chosen one it's another prophecy narrative anything <laughs> you could have done with this movie and they do a goddamn prophecy narrative like this is my problem I don't know if you've seen the new Mortal Kombat movie but that's the same yes. problem I had with this movie like you've got I mean, you don't have as much to pull from from the Sorcerer's Apprentice, but like, there's so many ways that you could go with a story like this, and you choose one of the laziest sort of story structures in all of storytelling. Great. Yeah, yeah, they they go for the whole prophecy narrative thing, but he he's got the uh, Merlin's metal dragon figurine, which forms into a ring, which therefore tells uh, Cage or Balthazar, I should say, uh, that he is the Prime Merlinian. Uh, but what I enjoy here is like, right, well, we've got to get to work. You're the prime millennium. Uh, and he goes like, stay here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and get the magic book. We're going to teach you some spells. I think if I was like 10 years old, I'd be like, this is weird. You'd, you'd follow I'm, him. Gonna... Yeah, you'd follow him. <laughs> it's like, mm, you know, also, I've, I've got this some is, questions. This is a, 
Also, this is a 10-year-old kid. You're not going to trust him to just say, don't touch anything and expect him not to touch anything. You're, you're going to expect him to accidentally break a wall, which gets a magic babushka doll out of somewhere. He's going to accidentally open it, and a man is going to form out of cockroaches, which, <laughs> which is how I imagine Alfred Molina enters any room. A bunch of cockroaches <laughs> kind of just enter a room, and they form into Alfred Molina. Well, we've got Alfred Molina on the line right now in cockroach form. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's like, you know... Um, obviously Dave gets the ring and he just happens to crack open the wall which just happens to have the magic evil the bushka in there but what I what I hate about this scene is one of those things where you know when a character keeps falling into things he goes backwards stumbles into a thing backwards whoa stumbles into another thing whoa stumbles into another thing which just happens to be a Chinese urn with a 10 year curse lock on it um, so as you said sort of <laughs> skipping through weirdly specific time frame on that as well very specific time frame just so we can get to 10 years later basically um so uh, alfred molina's horvath is unleashed um him and balthazar fight and then they sort of lock themselves in the urn um or get locked in the urn as part of their scuffle yeah and then because of this um you know david's um ends up which i think is something that you know they allude to when we go to 10 years later when Dave is now a 20 year old physics student studying at new york university yeah uh, they say to him um because obviously the store goes back to normal. There's no fire. No one believes him, obviously. And he yeah. gets put in like a psychiatric ward or something for yeah, 10 years. So he has to go to counselling like for 10 years. And that's just brushed under. That's a big detail yeah. that Disney swept under the rug there. But I, I think it kind of makes sense, though. Like this guy that had this sort of, yeah, though this traumatic experience where he actually experienced real magic. Like it kind of makes sense for like him to be to be so involved in physics and science to try to, you know, figure out a way that all of that shit actually happened. Like that is, I think actually a fairly logical way that they put that, they put that character, but yeah, they're just like a throwaway line. It's like, Oh yeah, I went to some intensive therapy and all that. There's also that line where it's like, do you know, having a, do you know, in some parts of this area, having a massive freak out is being called, is called pulling a David Stutler. Like that's how, that's <laughs> just how like traumatic all of this has been for me. <laughs> Yeah, like I say, it, it's kind of, you know, it, it's such a throwaway line to say, um, oh, yeah, I've been in counselling for the past 10 years. It turns out I've just got, it was a, a glucose reaction or something like yeah. that. But, um, you know, I, th I think, you know, if they'd just worked it in, even with just a few lines to say, you know, I, I never, obviously he's been trying to forget about it because he thinks he's been crazy. But even if they said, you know, this is why I took physics, I've been trying to work it out, but... They, they kind of address it later on to say, you know, well, this is why physics comes so naturally to you is because you're the prime yeah. millennium. Um, that's you know. just as throwaway as the therapy as well. They're just like, yeah, it comes natural to you because it uses that 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 fact in, in biggest air quotes that we all know is false. That's like humans only use around 10% of their brain. It's like, well, no. Humans can use all of their brain, just not all at once. It's like mm. different parts. Yeah, it's... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, you know. Well, I'm not saying that Cage is wrong. We'll blame the writers on that absolute yeah. fi brain. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, Cage was probably on set, being like, you know, this is wrong, right? <laughs> you know, I actually use 200 percent of my brain. Um, and we're, we're this is Nick Cage's world, and we're just living in it. Yeah. Um, I, I find the best way to do a Nicolas Cage impression is that you just exhale on every single word. Because it seems like the man never takes a breath. He's, 
He's always exhaling on every word. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is why physics comes so naturally to you. And almost sexy in a kind of way. And I'm kind of into it. Um, but, you know, with, with Dave, he's this tormented student. Um, he's trying to live his life. Obviously, you're not going to get away that easily. Uh, Horvath and Balthazar are now out of the urn and they're actively seeking the um, the Grimhold, the Babushka doll, and they're trying to find... Dave as well so you know these are the set pieces we've got about you know 20 minutes of like exposition at the start of the film to get to this point mm. um but then it kicks off quite quickly you know that Dave has found Becky again you know there she's a radio host he fixes um so, I just want to yeah, yeah. So he fixes the satellite. She has a like, and this this is something that I'm idly related to because I, you know, she has a show uh, on the university radio station. I also, um, in my first year of university, had a uni radio show that I did, and it's like, oh, I kind of missed that. So it brought back some memories. It wasn't as it wasn't as analog as theirs. Like it was just a tiny little room. It was all digital. Like they've got like CDs and like full on mixes and everything. Like they've got like the whole setup there. We definitely didn't have that. But, you know, like, I, it, it made me miss something, even if it didn't present it in the way that I remember doing it. But, yeah, so he fixes the satellite after it literally gets struck by lightning. But, and that they could see from all the way down there that the satellite got struck by lightning. Don't necessarily uh, entirely believe that. But something we forgot to mention that, that I don't understand is Becky's interest in music. We never, so she says that her interest in music, so we're assuming that her sort of degree is something around music. We don't see her go to any classes or anything. We see her in, actually, because the only thing we see her at university other than the physics class, which I guess she must be taking as an elective, is her going to a yoga class at the at the university. So we're led to believe that she's studying music, but she's also doing a physics elective for whatever reason. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you can tell me how physics and music intertwine, let me know. Um, tweet me and tell well, me how that works. Well, they get that scene. They they has that scene with the Tesla coils where they play that um that Ray Charles song and that also that One Republic song that plays bloody four times in this movie. Yeah, which is I a genuinely good song, but man, the the license for that must have been really expensive or something. So they're just like, we just got to play it as many times as possible. <laughs> Yeah, that that seemed to be, I think, the only sort of um, reason as to why they had Becky's character be interested in music. You know, they give it like a a, a bit of um, expansion to say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really into radio and I want to be a radio host. And like, cool, fine, absolutely grand, no issue with that. But they also kind of use it as a means so that Dave can win her over for his arc to win the girl through the medium of songs being played via Tesla coils. Um and outside of that, I think her character isn't given that much to do other than react to the situation she finds herself in um, and knock on Dave's underground lab door, say, hey, remember that date we've got? It's like, ah, oh, my my labs. I, I can't do his accent. Um, yeah. But he's, he's lab being yeah, we, we, we should have we mentioned, yeah, Jay Baruchel plays the grown-up Dave. And I will say, in terms of the casting, I do think the young kid that they get to play, uh, 10-year-old Dave, resembles and also has the mannerisms of Jay Baruchel. So that was pretty good casting and a good performance from that actor. Yes, definitely. Uh, <laughs> I think it was uh, Jake Cherry of my notes played the young, yeah. young Dave Stutter. So shout out I, to Jake Cherry. Yeah, you were good in the Night at the Museum movies, I believe. You're in the first one at least. 
I think he had he never saw the others. <laughs> had a lot of roles of playing young versions of adult characters, and then I think dropped off the radar in the uh, last few years. Um, so if you're listening, Jake Cherry, I hope you will. Um, but yeah, but then we get into um, you know the plot starts moving. Eventually, um, Balthazar and Dave meet, but this is sort of after uh, you know Dave has been chased by wolves. Um, and we get to- which were real wolves, by the way. They actually got real wolves to do that. And I was reading again, IMDb. Take grains of many grains of salt. Uh, those were real wolves, but they had to like, um, like use CGI to alter the faces and like you know use like intense sound effects on there because the wolves were actually quite pleasant and nice <laughs> on set. They were incredibly well trained, so they needed to like enhance them to make them more aggressive. <laughs> I, I, I like the idea that there are good wolves and bad wolves who are just hard to work with, just like any other actor. There are good and yeah. bad ones. Uh, they've and got the, their own they, wolf union. Yeah. Imagine, uh, imagine how bad it would have been if they got the Edward Norton of Wolves on this movie. That would have been horrible. <laughs> In many ways, I, uh, I really wanted that, uh, really wanted that to happen. Um, <laughs> but what I think one of the things I liked about, you know, Balthazar makes the save on the giant sort of metal eagle. But one of yes. the things I enjoyed about his character that so you know he's nice that he turned, um, he turned the wolves into puppies, but then turned the puppies back into pictures into from whence a... they came, so they did get yeah. hit by the train. It's like you know what? It's, nice it's little a, detail. A small, he's got a small got detail. A nice heart. Yeah, it's a, it's a small detail, but you know he's you know he's a good egg, um, which I, I you know one of the small things that he just makes you like a character a little bit more. You know, it's it's not all just about the wizardry and the pursuit of the prime millennium. Um He's he's a good lad there, um, so. It's this part here where he's, I think, just trying to convince Dave of his, um, you know, the prophecy, prophecy narrative, and it's your destiny. Like you know, this is all true. And a lot of the film is Dave sort of going, you know, oh, the will I, won't I? The do I want to? Do I want to not? Um, I think one of Cage's lines um, when I think they lose the Grimhold, and then I always find it weird because they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know that Grimhold that I threw into the street as a boy 10 years ago? You're going to help me find it. And I kind of think with this, yeah. it's like, it's been 10 years of an event that I've been told I'm crazy about and tried to forget. Why do you think I would know where it is? And then Cage is just like, oh, don't worry about it. I've got a tracking spell just for this yeah, occasion. That's, a, that's <laughs> the thing. Why does Horvath also spend so much like interrogating as if he knows where it is? Only for him just to use that later and then find that some old Chinese woman picked it up off of the street and took it home for herself. Yeah, because, you know, Balthazar's got a tracking spell. Um, Horvath has got an almost um, Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock way of just getting into the yeah. headspace of people who were there. And he's um, he can see that there was um, you know, an old Chinese lady that picked it up and took it with her. Um, and then, you know, we get into the... Um, uh, the Chinatown scene, which sort of took so long, and then this is where all the confetti comes in when mm. Dave just about uses the ring to fire it at the questionably CGI'd dragon. Uh, they've got that other sorcerer, um, and this is kind of a thing as well because obviously the whole thing with the Grimhold, it's um, Horvath was the outer layer of the Babushka doll, and in each successive layer, it was other um i think it was other sorcerers and bad wizards that they captured tried over to, the years. yeah that tried um, to free morgana and then you know they captured within the same prison i believe 
<laughs> I think that again, was again seen this movie a bunch of times and I don't even remember. I watched this about <laughs> you know I watched this about probably eight hours ago. Still don't even remember. <laughs> And, and this is the thing. So I thought there were going to be sort of a lot more evil wizards that came out of it, but there are two. Um, there's one who gets yeah. the dragon who quite creepily, you get that that image of the dragon like in his skin, that sort of crawling up. and that um, I really liked that though. And he's sort of controlling, yeah, with his sorcery. It's like got that metal plate around him. I thought, And then it goes out of the metal plate. But spare a thought for the people in the Chinatown festival with the big sort of dragon and then, like, you know, that actually transforms into a real drag, and they're like, oh, this is getting heavy. It's like, what happens to those guys? Like, because their, their legs become the feet of the actual, uh, the legs and feet of the dragon. <laughs> I think they get at spat one out. Point. I think at the end of the scene, they, they get hmm. spat out, and they're just kind of, like, sat with, like, the metal framing of the bodywork of the dragon. Like, I can't go back to normal life anymore. What just happened? Yeah. <laughs> Um, we we, sh- we should also mention just before just to show how much um uh, range that Nicolas Cage has, we get to see him say one phrase in Cantonese very badly. It's like it's, now look, I am not a na- native Cantonese speaker, which you know it's so bad that Horvath disguised as this old Chinese lady mistook it for Mandarin. Yeah, <laughs> that that was how they found out that Horvath was in disguise because it turns out all all wizards as well. You should know can shape shift as pretty much as standard. Um, and uh, the sort of kind of evil British wizard, Drake Stone, I think is his name later yeah. on. Chris, Chris do... Angel type, yeah. <laughs> Played <laughs> by Toby do... Kebbell. Yeah, I, I liked Drake Stone. I thought he was quite um, quite weirdly charming in his own way. But all wizards can shapeshift. All wizards can plasma blast and firebolt and do force pushes as standard, along with, as we said um, various spells that just so happen to be useful for the film in that time, such as tracking beacons for uh, mm. the Grimhold as well. If you need a spell, they just happen to have it at, <laughs> at that point in the film as well. Um, but I, I did like as well the um, when they're sort of leaving Chinatown, they've sort of <clears throat> escaped, and then the, they've disguised themselves as like um, your classic New York cops with the yeah. mustaches as well. Um, Nick Cage looking very, very suspiciously like his character in World Trade Center, almost the exact yeah. <laughs> same, exact same mustache as well. Um, but this sort of begins, you know, Dave's training, um, which you get the sort of the, the running joke about uh, having to wear old man shoes. Um, yeah, because the rubber soles don't conduct magic or energy as well, so you need to have, you know, the leather shoes. <laughs> You have to have leather shoes because those are the most conductive uh, for Millennium magic. And I'm assuming other magic as well. I think it's only Millennium and Morganian magic, or they're just the sects of wizards that have splintered off by this point. Um, but it's it's it, that whole dress sense of Dave's, though, because he wears like the same checkered shirt and like red jacket and uh, mm. those loose fitting jeans and old man shoes. That we you know in the 2010s, certainly in the UK, that was definitely a look for a man of a certain age for a time. So it was, um, um, I think by the time this came out, I would have been, I would have been like 19 or 20. So I think I just missed the boat on that for better or worse. Um, I think I never wore old man shoes for jobs. Um, but that was definitely a look and one I'm glad to see has died and will never, <laughs> will never come back. Um, but outside of. I wish I could. 
I wish I could tell you the same for Australia, but I was 12 at the time of this film, so unfortunately no comment from me on that. I cannot <laughs> I can't contribute any further. I thought you were going to say, you know, that, that was a look that never went away in Australia. Um, I like to imagine Australians just walking around in old band shoes, just living their best lives and having a great time. Um, mm. I'll spare you my Australian accent because I don't want to... You're like, ah, this piece of shit. Um, <laughs> but then begins a lot of the... Um, a lot of the training, and this is when you know we get introduced to uh, Drake Stone, who is a celebrity illusionist, who is also a Morganian. Um, this is when Dave is starting to court Becky a lot more as well, um, and we get this whole thing of um, Balthazar saying, "No, you can't have love. You know, love is a distraction mm. to your training." But then, you know, only like a scene or two later when Becky arrives, he's like, oh, like, why didn't you tell me that you were having company? I'm your uncle. I'm going to get your rich cream. And he completely plays along with it and he's completely fine with it. So he ignores his own rules. Yeah, only to then go. It's almost like he forgot at that point, And then when she comes over again, he's like, wait, what the fuck? What are you doing? <laughs> I think it's fair to say as strict as Millennium training rules are, they're also very flexible as and when the film needs it to be. Um, Just on uh, with the, what was it, Drake Stone, Toby Kebbell's character, they bring up an interesting sort of thing in that that they don't really delve into that much. Like the reason, like, you know, because Horvath is sort of like, you know, um, you know, berating him for basically, you know, I think he said something like, do you think Morgan ever pulled a rabbit out of a hat? Basically saying that like, like magician magic is like a lower art form of magic, I guess, in a way. And I think Toby Kebbell's character said something along the lines of like, oh, my my, my master left me when I was a teenager and they, he left me with nothing but, you know, a spell book. And that, that's another, sorry, that's another, um, uh, you know, sorcery lingo that we get. Incantus. They say that a lot in the film as well. So it's like, left me with an incantus and like, you know, a, a bunch of abandonment issues. So I improvised and, you know, became Chris Angel, basically. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot to um, a lot to Drake Stone's character. I think you get more flashing out with him in those lines than uh, a lot of the other characters. But Incantus is another one. This is seems to be the um, very specific uh, wizarding history and spellbook that he's constantly updating. It's like a live Wikipedia page almost, but a bit yeah. more accurate. Um, it's... Yeah, like because as soon as as soon as Nick Cage opens the book to show um, uh, Dave, Dave's like sort of scared, whiny face is already in it in like the pictures with all the Merlin, um, you know, apprentices. <laughs> it's, you know, that that was a nice little bit. I thought it's like like and there's you, like all scared and open mouthed and just cowering, which I thought was a was a great little touch there as well. Um, but this is close to the part as well where Dave is impressing Becky with the Tesla coils for the first time. He shows her um, uh, secrets by One Republic, as you said, not the first or last time this gets played. And then this is all like, oh, like you were paying attention. He's like, oh, yeah, I saw that you like this song. But this is one of those things that I kind of hate when, you know, they're in the cage um, or, or I think close to it. And they do the panning shot of all the Tesla coils being struck by lightning. And it's, yeah. it's like... Well, I'm supposed to be as awestruck as the characters are. I, I yeah. don't think so, cinema. Uh, wow, that's some lovely CGI. That's it's <laughs> it's like yeah, it's 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 great. Like I wish I was in those testicles and you were playing a song for me as well. And it's like uh, whatever. It's like you know, I wasn't a fan of One Republic then. I'm not a fan of One Republic now. So this doesn't do much oh, well. 
for me. Um, but you know, if you like One Republic, you know, each their own. But I just think if I was Becky, yeah. I'd be like, cool story, bro. And then just yeah. um, you know, I'll give you know be more impressed by some other Tesla calls when you can give me some sweet opera or yeah. something. I don't know. Um, well, the last guy that played me, the, the last guy that I met that was playing Tesla coils, he played me Nickelback. So you know what, Rum Republic <laughs> is a uh, playing Nickelback on Tesla coils, and it looks like your uncle actually looks like the lead singer of Nickelback. So that's weird, but yeah, One Republic's a step up, I guess. I think if Dave had played Nickelback, actually, I'd be like, you know what, you've got some stones to bring <laughs> me here to this underground underground lab that no one knows is here and play Nickelback. That's the kind of confidence I'm looking for in a yeah. <laughs> in a, a maybe maybe not wizard with old man shoes. Yeah. Uh, so God bless you, Dave, yeah. for taking my, my. I was going to say apologies to both Nickelback and One Republic for this episode. I say I say I bring Nickelback slander to this podcast, despite the fact I have been to a Nickelback concert with my mum. Which is a story for another podcast, but let's move on. Let's keep that. Let's keep that a uh, in in mystery no, for the rest of the show. That's for Krogue Rage, a Nickelback podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, moving on to like another scene as you know, bringing up the underground lab here, um, and touching on earlier when we say this film was suggested by a scene in Fantasia when they just have the mop and cleaning scene. Um, and the whole like, um, so it's, it's kind of a fun scene. He's letting the mops do their thing whilst he's getting a shower. It's um, very similar if you've seen Fantasia to sort of Mickey Mouse trying to control the mops, but um, obviously they lose control. They uh, flooded again, and this is basically if you're doing a drinking game to this, uh, take a drink every time Dave gets saved by Balthazar, um, and this is another one where Dave is again dis- disillusioned and sort of flip-flopping around whether he wants to be a magician or not. But, um, you know, I, I kind of like this scene. It, it, it was fine. You can, you can see why they put it in. Such an iconic scene from the original animation. But um, so how was, how was it for you, the, uh, the like the mop scene that they basically had to do at this part? Look, I didn't like it back in 2010 when I first <laughs> saw this, and I like it even less now. Look, I just think... The movie would probably... I, I know why it's there, but the movie would probably be better than, without it because it kind of stops the film completely dead for five or so minutes. And it's not its not as if they're emulating any of the imagery from the original sort of... from the original short, which, by the way, like, you know, I'm guessing everyone who's listening to this has probably seen it, but, you know, the Sorcerer's Apprentice short from Fantasia is incredible and mm, is... Sure. And, yeah, there's so much... There's so much visual, like imagination going on in there and i know it's animation so there's a lot more chance to do that but here it just looks so bland and you can tell that there's a lot of like thought put into it because you know it's just not something that i would think would ever work in live action though and i know that's not that's probably more my problem than with the the film's problem but it's just I just don't see why they did it unless you're going to match it or do anything interesting with it other than like, you know, if you want your reference to Fantasia, you have the hat, you have Mickey Mouse's hat in the, in the post credit sequence, but uh, I don't know. I just not a fan of this sequence. It just, it's, it easily could have been omitted from the film, I think, but I know why it's there and it's, 
honestly just kind of a lazy callback and it's like hey no it's actually sorcerer's apprentice it's this other movie but no it's actually the sorcerer's apprentice in case you forgot what that was <laughs> in case you got what was uh what this film is massively influenced and inspired by let's just shoehorn yeah. it into the halfway point just so you know exactly uh what level we're on it's like yeah i think i agree this like I, I think for the first viewing for me i thought yeah it's fine i get why they put it in there but mm. um that being said, I do like the floating spray bottle when, like, he says, I command you to stop. The spray bottle just sprays him in the face. <laughs> like, that's, that's, uh, that was, like, probably the only part I liked of that sequence. But, like, him at the door with, like, the mops trying to, like, you know, like, grab him and pull him away and things like that. Like, it's just, it's a bit too much. Yeah. Again, it, it's kind of like, I, if even if they'd omitted that scene, I don't think it would have affected the film too badly. I think it would have kept moving. It, it, this was almost like their excuse for, um, you know, it's like, oh, what could we do instead of like a, a your, your classic training montage? Oh, we'll just put the Fantasia mop scene in there to show that he's yeah. starting to control things a bit more. So it was kind of um, the lesser of two evils almost, I think, to mm. put that scene in there. The film does have training montages as well. Like when he's first trying to do like the plasma Hadouken, there's like a lot of times <laughs> of like him, like, like, you know, shooting it out and the ball like flies like half a centimeter and then like fizzles out or it's like it's him go like the ball's going everywhere there's one where it hits him in the nuts but he's wearing like hockey padding there so like he lifts up the padding he's like ah padding that's why it's there for and then it comes back and hits him in the nuts again yeah i mean you know get your nut shot in there um yeah it is a disney film after all so. you know <laughs> that's you know that's my level of humor i was like oh you got hit in the balls i'm nearly 30 years old um and that's you know that's where i am as as i'm a human <laughs> being the peak of comedy. I mean, <laughs> you know what? What they were just missing was a good old classic fart, uh, fart joke in there as well. And then this would have got a straight ten out of ten from me, a golden mm. cage off the bat. Um, well, what do you think of the comedy in this film? Because, like, as much as like this is quite a restrained. Like, I mean, it's probably, it's weird that we're talking about it this late in the show, but like this is quite a restrained Nick Cage sort of both role and performance, which is. A bit bizarre because he had a lot of input on this film like this film is kind of like he's like the like he was the one that kind of thought of the idea for this film of like him being a wizard and but he's still so restrained in it like instead of the sort of crazy manic uh uh cage humor you normally get like it's a lot drier which i think in in some moments it really works like there's that moment where like i think it's during another training montage and like you know balthazar is just trying to mess with him a little bit and like you know he shoots the tesla coil at him and it like uh yeah it shoots a tesla coil at dave and like he's like ow that wasn't funny and then he grabs like a little teacup and saucer and it's like oh well this will be hilarious and then like zaps him again and just slowly <laughs> sips the tea again like that might be the funniest part of the whole movie to me I think yeah, there's a, there's a lot of um, uh, I think more subtle cage in this one where the comedy mm. comes in. I think going back to the Chinatown scene, um, he's, he's saying like obviously Balthazar could have dealt with that um, the wizard they unleashed there and taken out the dragon all by himself if he wanted to, but he sort of used this as an excuse to train uh, Dave. Yeah. He's like he like. Like you, like you just need to like clear your mind and focus. <laughs> and then Dave says something like, "He's like, are you insane?" And he just like puts his finger and thumb, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, just a little bit." <laughs> it's it's like there's a lot of subtle moments that that Cage does here quite well. And I think it's one of those. Um, I think if you're looking for comedy in this film, then I don't really think you're gonna find it. Um, but I, th I think it's it is 
a small reminder. You know, I wouldn't recommend mm. this film for this reason, but it's a small no. reminder that Cage can do comedy, and I think he does it quite well. I think it's something he doesn't get enough credit for. Um, but there's some, some tidbits in there of, um, you know, to shoehorn it in the range of Cage, um, mm. certainly in this one as well. I think um, I think the casting of Jay Baruchel might have something to do with it as well. Like you know, like a a comedic actor that like came from the you know the Judd Apatow staple of like you know of films like you know. And this was kind of 2010 was also weirdly like the year of Jay Baruchel because he had this film. He also had She's Out of My League, which is a a rom com that's mostly forgotten about, but I actually think is quite good. And then this same year, he was also the voice of Toothless in How to Train Your Dragon. All characters which are very similar. Like, if you want Jay Baruchel in your movie, you're getting him for a specific specific purpose. You're getting him for, like, you know, a nerdy character with really nervous energy. Like, that's why you hire him. And I think in terms of, like, this role, like, he's perfect for the role. I just think in the ro- that's not saying that the role itself is that great. But it's yeah. like, if you were to cast this sort of role, like, Jay Baruchel would definitely be in, like, the top of your mind. Yeah, definitely. And actually saying that, um, be one of the voices in How to Train Your Dragon. He was kind of, he was one of those actors where it's that whole like, I think he was one of those. Where do I know you from, actors? Mm. Um, so that's actually ticked a, a box there. So he was one of the voices in How to Train Your Dragon. But yeah, I think you know, for the role, the sort of um, timid, nerdy guy. Um, I think it was it was it was a fine casting. I didn't have any issues with him. I think he did. Um, I think what you'd expect from a Jay Baruchel role in this film and did the most that he was allowed to do. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the acting as a whole, I didn't really have an issue with, you know, from, you know, Jay to Cage to um, Alfred Bellini to Teresa Palmer as Becky as well. I didn't really have an issue with the actors or what they were no, doing. They're, they're, all doing, they're all doing what they need to do. Like, uh, yeah, and especially, like, I think Alfred Molina, like, he knows, like, the guy just looks naturally evil. Like, he's relishing these <laughs> sorts of villain roles. To- Toby Kebbell is definitely the one having the most fun, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. That's just because, like, he's probably got the most sort of eccentric character to play with. And, like, but no, everyone does their job well. I think it's just the, the script kind of lets them down a lot in just, like, sort of how generic it is in a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, quite generic. He plays a lot of stuff safe. Definitely Drake Stone, the most fun character to watch. I think important to say as well, he dressed yeah. like like how you imagine a stage magician from the late 90s, 2010, 20s uh, would would dress very almost like glam rock, like gothic yeah. glam rock in a way. Frosted so like, tips. The frosted tips, natural, so like the painted nails, um, the, uh, the the heeled boots. Um, and yeah, hey, chains he, upon chains on his clothing. <laughs> and hey, from a costume department perspective, he's crushing it and nothing with respect yeah. to it. Um, and he carries himself with confidence and he's, um, you know, a, a really fun role role to watch. Um, yeah. Alfred Molina as well, as he said, obviously, eating, well, eating up the role as much as he can do, you know, these roles almost like second nature to him something i think a role he could do in his sleep but you know the fact he comes here and he he gives it you know a lot of gumption and gusto as well and he gets the bit of comedy when he's going to the library to try and um look up on dave he's like you don't need to see my faculty identification card um you know we get a little bit of comedy in there um i even like when like the the hungarian mirror trap where like that you touch a mirror and then like as soon as something goes into it it's then stuck in the mirror realm like there's that moment like after there's that fight in the bathroom between you know um between between the four wizards like because they're trying to get the grim hold and um 
uh, what was it? Melina gets stuck in the mirror trap. And uh, one of my favorite parts of this movie is like how Nick Cage dispatches with Drake Stone. It's like he just flicks, he, he flicks his fingers and it throws um, Drake Stone into one of the toilet cubicles. But then there's just this little slight water drop sound effect as soon as he yeah. does it. <laughs> it's so bizarre. <laughs> Yeah, that was kind of like, I almost missed that. I had to like rewind. I was like, did I just hear that? He just flicks him and he goes like, boink. Um, and the, you know, there's something about a boink sound effect for water drop that I just find <laughs> that I just find great. Uh, the Hungarian mirror trick as well seems to be like a recurring thing because um, uh, Horvath is like, ah, I was like, I've not seen this in, in quite a while. I think it was him who says that. And then they bring it back in the sort of the um, ensuing car chase as well, um, where it's, mm. you know, who can Hungarian mirror trick when, one up the other person? Where, where at the beginning they're driving um, uh, Balthazar's 1935 Rolls Royce, which is Nicolas Cage's actual car. Of course it is. Which is such a Nick Cage move to do as well. Of course it is. I think I think he is a bit of a car collector. I think stemming from Gone in sixty seconds. I think that sort of kickstarted some car collection, maybe even before then, but. Um, I think I did read that it was like the one of a kind car, and he's like, like you can use my Rolls Royce, um, like yeah, absolutely, why not? Then the sort of the comedy of trying to basically transfigure the car into a faster car until they turn it. Uh, Dave accidentally turns it into like a clapped up banger. Um, yeah, because the M- Molina and um, Kebble turn their car into like a into like a rubbish truck, like a yeah, like a com- compactable yeah. rubbish truck. Yeah, and they're like literally about to crush them, <laughs> but then he's trying to turn their car into like a shit box, but then accidentally turns their own car into a shit box. Yeah, and then they just don't crush them for some reason or another. No, they and just then... they just leave, which is really weird. It's like but they've I'm... got the they've got the grim hold now, I believe, or do yeah. they? Um, I can't I th- remember. <laughs> think I think they get the grim hold at this point. Um, because then this is this is where like it's weird like they could have crushed them and just like well our competition is gone the prime millennium is dead let's get Morgana Le Fay back and like activate the rising um, which on that note I should uh, quite an important plot detail um, they're trying to bring Morgana Le Fay she's like the the, the main villain the Morganian wizard um, and she's want to activate a spell called the rising which is going to bring back a whole host of deceased um, sorcerers and through that they're going to plunge the world into darkness. Because yeah. the evil villain needs something to do. Yeah. And it um, creates a sick looking fire pentagram in the sky that bounces between satellites, which is super cool. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you know, for the for all the okay CGI, it's, it's quite a cool effect at the end that they're using all the uh, mm. satellites to make the pentagram at the end as well. Um, but you, I think between this, you do get Balthazar finally giving some backstory as well. Um, which gives a bit more, bit more context to his character's motivations. But, but we were kind of told that at the beginning of the film with the narration. Like that's why I <laughs> yeah, think this yeah. might have been like like things that were changed due to like things that tested poorly because we knew that information from the from the uh, from the narration. Like I guess we probably wouldn't have known that from like say if it was just the footage. I'm not sure if that was like what was originally intended. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like all of this is revealed but we all already knew that like Balthazar and Veronica Monica Bellucci's character you know had sort of a relationship with them and then we also realize around here that the reason why I guess Horvath turned 
is because he also had a thing for Veronica, but she chose Balthazar. So yeah. in the end, it, yep. it feels really, one, petty, but two, also just really lazy from a writing standpoint. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, how can we make, you know, justify that all the villains are evil? It's like, it's about a girl. Um, it's like a thousand year petty grudge. I think Balthazar is like, you know, like, it can't be about that, you know, surely. And he's like, it's always been about that. Like, oh, okay. Um, but but like you said, obviously, you know, Balthazar's re-explaining what we as the audience already know from the, the lot of exposition from the first five minutes of the film, which is they captured um, Morgana Le Fay in the Grimhold, but I think uh, Veronica took Morgana's soul into her body and put herself into the Grimhold. Um, basically, this big sacrifice. So um, Balthazar's been trying to find a way to, I think, bring Veronica back and stop the curse of mm. Morgana Le Fay, and he's been carrying around his his love for a thousand years. So, you know, so the heartstring moments, you know, his motivations... Um, a little bit more as well um but between all of this this is when um the, the setting up to the big showdown in uh mm. battery park i think it is yeah. as well um balthazar has used the parasites spell on drake to take his magic and then he mm. brings back uh abigail williams who i think for brief search was one of the first children to accuse a neighbor of witchcraft leading to the salem witch trials which they kind of brush over a little bit she's quite significant yeah. in history some might say not, not so significant in this movie not so significant <laughs> in this movie unfortunately she just goes to the radio station to make a request for becky's radio show and i don't know how she kidnapped her because i know she's probably got some weird um, sorcery potentially demonic sort of powers but like we don't see her we just cut to her being you know have red eyes and becky looking horrified and the next thing we know oh she's captured and then the next scene she's in with um with horvath horvath you know uses the parasite spell on her and takes her power and she's out of the movie yeah like, yeah it's it's like oh, oh okay it's kind of like the film said all right we've, yeah, got, like, we, we've got 20 minutes left we need to start <laughs> wrapping yeah. this thing up what, what was that? We said we said that we need each like we they can't just open another one. You need more and more sort of magic to open up this next one. Oh, I guess we better take this girl's power instead. Oh well, but we had all this stuff with it. Nah, don't worry about it. We'll just you know. Yeah, I I, I think this was a thing and something I was going to touch on earlier with the, the Grimhold. I think there was a lot of potential to have you know you know Babusha dolls have a lot of layers potentially a lot of evil sorcerers and I thought they were going to unleash more, but we got two. Um, the Chinese yeah. dragon um, war, um, sorcerer at the start, Abigail Williams here. You know, Drake doesn't really count because he was already in the present. Um, so you get yeah. two, and then you straight up Morgana Le Fay. Um, so I, I think that was, you know, maybe they just didn't want to busy up the film too much with extra characters, but I felt like they could have done more with it. Yeah. I'm just trying to get the timeline right here. So 7, 740 was when Morgana was captured in the Grimhold. So then for nearly a thousand years to almost 1700, no one is captured in the Grimhold until Abigail Williams. <laughs> so yeah. no, no, no one tried to free Morgana for like a thousand years or like, no, or like Balthazar didn't think to actually put anybody in the Grimhold for a thousand years. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty quiet from a Morganian standpoint. <laughs> they, they took a lot of time to regroup and collect their thoughts and then Balthazar yeah. just dispatched three yeah. sorcerers that, very quickly that, 
But that doesn't make any sense as well, because, I mean, this movie not making any sense, what a surprise. But when we get the giant <laughs> flaming sky pentagram and, like, all the evil sorcerers are coming back to life, we're going to, like, Egypt and, like, uh, like I guess, like, some sort of catacombs as well. Like, we're, like there's I think there's, like, mostly Egypt, because there's, like, a pharaoh statue that sort of bursts open. There's, like, some, I think, some Egyptian catacombs that, like, a face comes out of. I think there's some cemetery in, like, some, I, I think it might have even just been in New York. <laughs> So it's like, what were, you know, like, so all of these Morganians all over the world, and for a thousand years, none of them tried. But then they're still evil sorcerers, but they're all dead. Did Balthazar just go on, like, a mass Morganian genocide in this time? Is that why, like, he's so bitter? I, I mean, there's a lot of backstory to Balthazar, which I think <laughs> yeah. Disney perhaps wisely chose to neglect um, yeah. fr from the final film. But um, Nick, Nick Cage wrote all of that himself, too. And Disney no very politely rejected it. No doubt in my mind that that's what the backstory was. Um, but needless to say, the rising begins. Um, you know, at this point, Becky has been kidnapped, has been saved. She, she's now yeah. just accepts that wizards are a thing. She's um, been saved, but um, in in exchange for her, because no, he didn't have the Corvus didn't have the Grimhold because he wanted the ring and the Grimhold. So he wanted. Dave's ring because he yes. can't use magic without yes. his ring. Yeah. And so like so and then it also needs the ring to open up the last the last layer of the grim hold as well to let out Veronica who has been possessed by Morgana which we also forgot to mention. <laughs> there's there's a lot of busybody stuff going <laughs> yeah, on. So there's too much Hor going on. Horvath has the power of two sorcerers. He has Dave's yeah. ring. Um Veronica is possessed by Morgana Le Fay. The rising is starting in uh, Battery Park in New York, which they have to go and stop. Uh, Balthazar essentially goes to sacrifice himself as the last grandstand because Dave doesn't have access to his powers. D D Dave, he can see the spell of the rising, but Becky can't. I think it's a wizard thing, which they kind of brush over as well. And he asks mm. Becky, he's like, okay, are they using the satellite dishes to basically make the spell work and get all this range and amplify the spell? And I'm sure he says to Becky, right, I need you to climb up to the very top of that tower, turn the satellite dish. And maybe I missed this. I'm sure she doesn't do that. Maybe I missed that. She like, so yeah, she climbs up the building. She's just like, she looks at it. She's like, uh, okay, I guess I'm going to do that. Somehow gets all the way to the roof of this building, climbs up like the antenna tower where the satellite is. I think how she puts it off balance is she just kind of kicks it. <laughs> Great engineering. And that's how, like, it all, yeah. <laughs> she just kicks it and it moves, like, I guess, like a foot off to the left. And then, like, you know, the pentagram just disappears. I mean, poor planning from the engineers, poor planning from Morgana Le Fay. Uh, a lot yeah. of fingers to point, a lot of blame to be shared around for um, a thousand-year plan going to nothing there. <laughs> um, Dave turns up heroically during the fight. He's got the Tesla coil attached to his car he uses it to stun horvath i think the the tesla coil attracts the magic and he um a distraction long enough that balthazar can sort of recompose himself and blast horvath there, away. there is a lot of you know like I, I think back to that like uh arthur c clark um quote that always gets taken out of context or is said by a lot of stupid people to try to seem smart it's something it's like uh I, I, again, like I'm going to seem stupid myself if I, by not knowing it. It's like the only difference, but that you know, there's not that much difference between science and magic. I'll see if I can get the real quote up, but it's it kind of reminded me of that because in a in a sense, a lot of this movie is like trying to science up magic, and I'm like, 
Mm, I can yeah. see what you're trying to do here, but it's like even then, it's like a bit a bit of a stretch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's all kind of like um, sort of shown as well when uh, Balthazar has been um, hit by one of Morgana's blasts. Uh, Morgana's soul, her weird, touchy, pixely fly soul, has been separated from Veronica. And then he magics like the wires and the street lamps from magic in a uh, like a power box, like a circuit breaker power box or something to make basically an on the fly DIY Tesla coil. That's then um, just you know it's all about distraction here. Overwhelms Morgana Le Fay, and then as we've been saying, um, he hits her with about a thousand Hadoukens um, yeah. and just takes her. <laughs> it's, out. it's like a Gatling gun of Hadoukens. <laughs> one point so as the prime millennium like, it turns out he doesn't need the ring after all the powers inside yeah. him all along a thousand hadoukens later uh morgana was, he was like blinking you miss it because morgana just dissipates yeah i think uh, there's also like a dramatic close-up on um there's a dramatic close-up on balthazar at one point that sort of slowly moves in and then it's nick cage going like here's the one the <laughs> and by the one millennium. and by the what and by the one i mean jet lee's the one Great movie. He <laughs> <laughs> might as well have done it at that point. Um, he, he, gra- he grabs two motorbikes and crushes a guy with them. It's fantastic. <laughs> Nick Nick Cage has got his own fantastic film podcast out there. Um, yeah. By the way, that Arthur C. Clarke quote isn't exactly what I thought it was, and it's not in any way relatable. So I have indeed made myself look stupid. That Clark, that quote is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. No more stupid than this film, so don't even worry about it. Um, but yeah, the, the film wraps up quite quickly as well. So Balthazar dies, uh, Dave revives him, Balthazar and Veronica are finally reunited. Hadouken defibrillator. The Hadouk the Hadouk relator. Um defibrillator. <laughs> the Hadoub relator works a treat. Uh Balthazar gives Veronica the necklace he's been carrying around for a thousand years. Becky turns up, and then uh, her and Dave just on a whim fly to France on the mechanical eagle to uh, to go get some be- breakfast. Yeah, the the eagle, the big the big metal eagle that I believe is on not the Empire State, it's either the Empire State Building or the Chrysler Building. Not quite sure which big New York landmark uh, it's it's a part of, but yeah. So they fly away on a giant eagle, and it ends with the hilarious line of um, Jay Baruchel being like, ah, I don't know really, really how to know land this. Yeah, I can't even speak. It's too tight. He's like, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I know how to land this thing. And then they all laugh and fall <laughs> off the eagle and die. Yeah. Um, Somewhere over the Atlantic, they fall off, and they're dead. <laughs> and the bodies were never found. <laughs> yeah. um, that's my ending, at least. But that, then, me- that metal eagle was found in Paris, having a croissant under the Eiffel Tower in a beret, though. It was disguised, having a great time. Disguised in a beret, a ring of onions around his neck, a striped blue and white shirt. No one knew the yeah. difference. <laughs> um, and then in the post-credits, as we touched on much earlier... Um, it is implied that Horvath is still around. I think he only got blasted out of the way. He was never killed or anything. He goes back it's to get his cat at the end. This is the Bronx. It's like the Bronx bull, which um, at some point comes to life to try to attack um, uh, Dave at one point. I believe like that gets turned into one of the eagles, or the eagle comes around and just swoops in and takes Horvath and just flies away. Yeah, I think the the eagle swoops in and takes the um, the Wall Street bull away, and just like, yeah. and then just to get rid of that, Horvath just kind of sneaks away, 
gets his hat at the end in the post credit scene. And then you obviously, yeah. as you said, you've got the, um, the Fantasia Mickey Mouse hat as a bit of an Easter egg as well. Um, mm. so like, I said Bronx Bull then. I meant Bronze Bull. <laughs> Sorry, it's not in the Bronx of New York. And I think I also said Jay Baruchel voiced Toothless and How to Train Your Dragon a tick up. Sorry. Apologies. I'm going to dodge some tweets here. So if you've got, if you're going to correct me, please put the tweet down. I hold, knew. Hold your fire. The, the, the corrections are in here. It's on the record. It's all recorded. Don't worry about it. Um, but yes, yeah, so, you know, as quickly as it came, the film wraps up um, very, very neatly in many respects. Yeah, almost and, very abruptly as well, because yet yeah, they they just sort of because like Veronica and um, and Balthazar just sort of embrace, and then we get the set. We get you know the last little bit between Becky and Dave where Becky finally says, oh yeah, I definitely ticked girlfriend on that. But she absolutely didn't. I'm telling you. Not back then, no. Definitely I mean, not. And Dave, we will never know for sure. Um, no. But, but now she's coming Because he was like, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> you've saved it. You've shown you're a wizard. You've won her over with the Tesla coil. You've got nothing more to prove now. You're on your way yep. to France for a t- tasty little baguette. And maybe more. Q1 Republic, wink, wink. one more time. Um, <laughs> one more time for One Republic as the credits roll. Yep. Um, but, you know, as we as we sort of look to sort of um, wind down the episode here as well, on your 10th, 11th, 12th, 100th viewing of The Sorcerer's <laughs> Apprentice, um, did this hold up for you? Has this changed? What are your sort of final thoughts on The Sorcerer's Apprentice? I mean... Look, I don't know if if it's just because of the amount of times I've seen this. Like, it's incredibly watchable. It's just kind of a vaporous movie. Like, it's a film that doesn't really stick with you a whole lot. It's only stuck with me because of just the countless times that I've seen it. But, like, it's very vaporous. It's just something that, you know, you watch, you kind of enjoy, and then you forget about it almost immediately. But there's, I mean, in terms of the caginess of this film, there isn't... It's probably on the weaker end in terms of like his filmography and full of ter- in full on term in terms of full on cage rage, but there's some good little subtle moments as you were speaking. But like the movie as a whole is just kind of aggressively okay. <laughs> I think that's a very apt way to sort of sum it up as well. For my first viewing, aggressively okay, couldn't agree more. Uh, and certainly at the time of recording, the film is available on Disney Plus, should you care to go and watch it. Uh, but to sort of bring Or this... if you do not have Disney Plus, which uh, the quick little story of how I actually watched this film. So my housemate uh, has Disney Plus, but uh, he only has it on his Xbox because apparently Disney Plus can only let you sign in on like a limited amount of devices. So I couldn't sign in on my smart TV. So And he took the Xbox with him before lockdown to his girlfriend's house. So... <laughs> Um, I had to pay five dollars to re-rent this movie on uh, just on Google Play. So uh, yeah, so oh, this shame. is the dedication I have for kind of the podcast. I expect to be reimbursed <laughs> as well. Uh, we'll but talk it's Australia. About it. It's it's Australian dollars, so it's only like what fifty p. I guess depends on how bloody useless our dollar is at the moment. So God, no more <laughs> useless than our pound in this post Brexit world at the moment. So <laughs> we'll we'll figure out the uh, the conversion post record. Um, but uh, I admire your commitment all the same. Uh, but certainly, as we uh, as we wrap up this episode, um, you know, once again, Sean Coates, thank you so much for joining. Uh, for the listeners, uh, where can we find yourself uh, on the old socials and elsewhere? Well, again, thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, so, as you said at the beginning, um, I have I do my own podcast called Another Bloody Movie Podcast. Basically, the name 
it comes from the fact that there's an abundance of movie podcasts and no one really wants it. And just to add the bloody to be, you know, very sort of Australian all about it too. Um, you can find that basically wherever you find good podcasts, Spotify, Apple podcasts, pretty much wherever you do it. Uh, look for that. Uh, we've actually just started a rec- a new series all about Australian cinema called podcast at hanging rock. I've got some really cool guests lined up for that. Uh, my first episode on wake and fright, uh, which is released for roughly for its 50th anniversary um, I did that with my good friend Liam Norval on our, for our pilot episode of that. That's up now, so you can go listen to that. Uh, in terms of everything else, uh, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, uh, different names, but it's all linked within the uh, website. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. That's both at SeanHub underscore. Um, a, a pun that only works if you have an Australian or British accent. So if you have any American listeners, I'm sorry. That's going to be very confusing to you. But it's uh, Sean, spelt the right way, S-E-A-N, Irish or bust, uh, S-E-A-N-H-U-B underscore at both of those places. And I also do written reviews over at the uh, US-based movie blog, Movie Babble. So uh, that's just moviebabble.com to read my written stuff over there. Wonderful stuff. Well, uh, all the links will be in the description wherever you're listening on your uh, podcast hosting sites. Uh, but that brings us to an end of this week's episode. We wrap up with the, uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. I thank Sean once again for taking the time to join me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. Uh, and we will hopefully see you next week. Thank you for listening if you have been. But until then, and as ever, keep on, keep on caging. It's all you have to do. Thank you. Take care and goodbye.